0: Well, thank you everybody for being here tonight. We so appreciate everyone's participation and we'll be turning it over to our panel in a few minutes. But for right now, I'm going to turn it over to Peter Ratcliffe at the Eastside Freedom Library for a few words.
1: Thank you, Robin, and welcome everyone. Um, We are probably three years now into a collaboration between the Eastside Freedom Library and the Ramsey County Historical Society around this broad theme of history revealed. Um, I would say in three years, we've only begun to get at the tip of the iceberg, and I think tonight is going to take us into some deep soil um, that we really need to understand as residents uh, here of Ramsey County in the state of Minnesota. We're really pleased to have a team of both faculty and students uh, from uh, the University of St. Catharines with us this evening. Robin is going to introduce them. I want to mention uh, two upcoming events that those of you who are interested in revealing history uh, might be interested in. On the 20th of this month, Um, The Eastside Freedom Library will be screening the film Labor's Turning Point, uh, which is about the 1934 Minneapolis Teamsters strike, and it will be followed with a panel discussion. And it's an exciting collaboration for us uh, because we're working with the San Francisco Labor Film Fest. And so there will be people in multiple time zones uh, watching this film. So the night of the 20th at seven um, on uh, Zoom and Facebook. And then next month in August, as part of History Revealed, our good friend, Greg Poferle, who has written a memoir about growing up in St. Paul um, called Turning Points. uh, and, And Greg became a business agent in the American Postal Workers Union. And then after he retired from that, he became a high school social studies teacher. And having retired from that, he has become the volunteer custodian at the Eastside Freedom Library. So Greg is a very talented person and he's written a great memoir. So that will be on August 12th in a collaboration with the Freedom Library and Ramsey County Historical. So let me turn things back to Robin and we'll get the show on the road. Thank
0: Thank you. you. Peter. Uh, We also at the Ramsey County Historical Society really appreciate this long-term partnership with the Eastside Freedom Library, and we want to thank all the um, professors and students who are participating tonight and everyone who's in the program watching. Just as a reminder, in addition to streaming live, this program will be recorded and it will be on our RCHS and Eastside Freedom Library's YouTube channels within a few days. So as a reminder, please keep your microphones and personal cameras turned off, and you may type your questions in chat at any time. We'll have questions. And then at the end of the program, we'll turn off the recording and the live stream, and you may turn on your microphones and cameras so we can all chat together and share. So please consider supporting the Ramsey County Historical Society in the Eastside Freedom Library. We rely on the support of members and friends like you to keep these programs coming. And both of our websites are on the screen. And there are some wonderful benefits to joining in addition to supporting these programs, including the Ramsey County Historical Society History Magazine, which is an award-winning quarterly magazine and you also can come to our historic site, Gibbs Farm, which is open this summer. We're so happy to be able to do that up on the corner of Librander and Cleveland. This weekend, we have a great program with um, Phyllis Root, who's gonna talk about the rusty patch bumblebees with her new book, Begin With a Bee. And this is for families of all ages. You can come out, visit our prairie and um, learn about bees. Uh, so all those programs are on our website rchs.com and other programs are on the eastside freedom library's website eastsidefreedomlibrary.org so as uh, peter mentioned um we have a lot of programs coming up so the ramsey county historical society acknowledges the sacred dakota land minnesota Makoche, the land where the waters are so clear they reflect the clouds is the ancestral and contemporary homeland of the Dakota people. It is also home to the Anishinaabe and other indigenous peoples. The Ramsey County Historical Society acknowledges that its sites are located on and benefit from these sacred Dakota lands. Ramsey County Historical Society is committed to preserving our past, informing our present and inspiring our future. Part of doing so is acknowledging the painful history and current challenges facing the Dakota people just as we celebrate the contributions of Dakota and other indigenous peoples. You can find our full land acknowledgement statement on our website, which includes actionable ways which Ramsey County Historical Society pledges to honor the Dakota and other indigenous peoples of Minnesota and the The Ramsey County Historical Society and the Eastside Freedom Library are committed to presenting the stories and histories of all in our community. And we are so pleased and excited and very honored to bring you tonight's program that is gonna talk about racial inequality and housing in Ramsey County with Dr. Rachel and Dr. Christine. And I'm gonna turn it over to both of them to introduce themselves. And there's wonderful students who are here with us tonight. Thank you all so much for being here.
2: Well, hello, everybody. My name is Rachel Nywert. I'm an associate professor of history at St. Catherine University, and we are so excited to be here with you this evening. Um, Christine, do you want to introduce yourself and then I'll share my
3: screen. That sounds like a great plan. Uh, So Dr. Christine West, I'm a professor in the Department of Economics and Political Science. Um, And as long as I have the mic off here, I also just want to quickly give a shout out to my team of students, not all of whom will have an opportunity to talk this evening. Um, Although maybe during the Q&A they'll get a chance, but I just wanted to give them a chance to wave. We have uh, Victoria, Ashley, Amalia, Uh, Ava and Callan, and I'm looking through the names to see if anybody else is hiding with their video off. I think um, we have a really great team of students who've been doing this research. Um, And Rachel, I know you have some students who are going to present with you as well tonight.
2: Yes. Oh, let's see. I see the name Ashley in the chat. So maybe. Oh,
3: Ashley's here too. Oh yeah. Ashley. There's Ashley. Yep. There she is. Oh yeah. She put her video on too, but we're all here. I
2: have two students who are joining me this evening who've been working with me, um, Anastasia and Ava, and we'll hear more from them in just a little bit. Um, So let me share my screen. Um, So at St. Kate's, um, Christine and I work together with other faculty, staff and students on a project called Welcoming the Dear Neighbor. With a question mark at the end. And the question mark at the end is actually a really important part um, of the title of the project. So we, our project is looking at um, and trying to better understand housing inequality in Ramsey County, particularly as it relates to race. Um, I'm a historian, so I'm interested in thinking about the history of housing inequality in Ramsey County. Um, Christine is an economist Um, is interested in connecting the past and the present and thinking about how these past inequalities and inequities influence our present. And we'll talk about that work as we go on tonight. The title for our project, Welcoming the Dear Neighbor, um, comes from the Sisters of St. Joseph, who are the group of nuns who founded St. Kate's. And the Sisters of St. Joseph claim as part of their mission statement, this idea that you would welcome or love the dear neighbor without distinction. And so by claiming this as our title with this question mark at the end, we really wanna ask the question, um, You know, did Ramsey County in the past, right? Were we welcoming of the dear neighbor? Are we welcoming of the dear neighbor um, today? And I think it probably doesn't give away the ending to tell you right now at the beginning that generally speaking, um, so far what we've learned is that the answer to the question is, um, no, we we haven't actually been particularly welcoming. Um, And it's worth thinking about why um, that was true in the past, why perhaps it continues to be true in the present, and what we could do about it, or what we should do about it. Our project is actually also a collaboration and a partnership with Mapping Prejudice. Um, So Mapping Prejudice is a project that's housed at the University of Minnesota, and when their project began, their first work was to map the presence of racial covenants in Hennepin County. A racial covenant is just um, language that's added to a property deed that says, um, in most cases, that only white people can live in that particular piece of property. on a, in a home in that particular piece of property, and certainly historians had long known that racial covenants existed, but there hadn't been a way yet that you could systematically and holistically map the presence of racial um, covenants in an entire community. Because right, the racial covenants live in housing deeds, and to go through each individual deed, sitting in you know the um, the county property office would take years and years and years. I think mapping prejudice has, also, has actually figured out that sort of by hand, it would take multiple lifetimes for someone to do it. <laughs> So Mapping Prejudice came up with this really amazing method where if they had digitized copies of property deeds from a county, they could use a software called Optical Character Recognition to scan those deeds to identify deeds that might have potential racial language in them. And once then, they had identified the deeds that had potential racial language in them, They use a sort of citizen scientist model where um, people in the community are invited to search those deeds that were flagged and try to identify whether or not they have actual racial language in them. And the reason they need to be searched by a person is because, for example, if. Betty White were to buy a house, the OCR software would flag that as potential racial language, but of course White is just her last name. So in that instance, it's not racial language. So someone has to go through and check. And once all the deeds have been searched, Mapping Prejudice then builds a map, showing their presence throughout the community. They finished their work in Hennepin County about two years ago. And there were questions about whether the project would come to Ramsey County, would continue its work in Ramsey County. And St. Kate's partnered with Mapping Prejudice to help bring that project to Ramsey County. When we started the work, we anticipated that it would be a three-year project to build the map in Ramsey County. And the first set of deeds were put online in February of 2020 in Ramsey County to be searched. A few months later, George Floyd was murdered and the uprising started in the Twin Cities. And Mapping Prejudice's project received a lot of attention. So a project that we thought would take three years to transcribe and search all the deeds that were flagged for potential racial language instead took six months. Um, all of the Ramsey County deeds had been transcribed and checked by early fall 2020. Because the deed transcription went so quickly, their mapping prejudice is still working on building the map. So I have a sneak peek of the map that, I'll, um, sh- that we can look at and talk about later this evening, um, but the Ramsey County map itself is not done in its entirety yet. The deed work is done, just not the, um, not the map building. Our project, in addition to helping Mapping Prejudice to um, build the map, we don't build the map, but we do help lead the transcription sessions where people can look through the deeds. Our work has been to develop and discover some of the context that surrounds the map, right? For me as a historian, part of what I'm interested in is thinking about how and why the map comes to look like it does. Why do we see racial covenants in some places and, in, and not in other places? What are the stories and the people um, that sort of exists that help to create the map? And so for the last um, year and a half or so, I've been working with a group of students um, In the archives, we started in physical archives, then we moved online um, because of COVID. And now we're just starting to be able to go back into the archives. And we're trying to learn more about the stories of housing inequality. My general sense, um, you know, I have not lived in Minnesota for my whole life. Um, I moved here in the early 2000s, so long enough ago that I think I can claim this as home, Um, but it has not been my only home. But my general sense in Ramsey County is that particularly for white people, um, there's not a good sort of narrative that exists of what the story of housing inequality and race is in Ramsey County. I think that if you ask people, a lot of folks could tell you the story of the Rondo neighborhood, Um, but I'm not sure that they could tell you a lot, especially white people again, could tell you a lot of other stories. And what I've realized through the research that I've been doing with my students is that if you look at the history of housing inequality and racism in Ramsey County, there is a persistent and and consistent thread of sort of racism around who gets to live where. And it is a persistent story how Um, white people in Ramsey County decided who could live where. the sort of reasons that they give for why people can and can't live in different places, that might change. But that there is always a concern with claiming space for white people, that does not seem to change. And I wonder if that's the history that we first think about when we think about this place that we live. And so I'm gonna start here with my students and we're gonna share some stories that we've discovered in the archives. So three stories. Um, I think one of the three might be familiar to folks here. Um, I'm guessing two of the three though might be a little less familiar. So we're each gonna share a story that we've been learning about in the archives and then I'll share some observations at the end. We'll look at the map and then I'll turn things over to Christine for she and her students to share some of the work that they've been doing um, around understanding present inequalities. So Anastasia, I think we start with you. So I'll mute myself and turn it over to you. Perhaps as you
4: start your slide, you
2: could just introduce yourself briefly.
4: Yeah, so hi everyone, I'm super excited to be here. Um, my name is Anastasia, um, I'm a rising senior while <laughs> here at St. Catherine University, um, majoring in history and mining in philosophy and will, has been working on this project so approximately like a year, maybe two. Um, But so for our first story, we're gonna be talking about the 1900 St. Paul mayor race. So um, political candidates were important for the black community. As for many years, black individuals could not vote um, or have any political voice within our local or federal government. They looked to vote for individuals who supported the growth and equality for black communities. And in the 1900, uh, the St. Paul mayor race housing became an important issue in the campaign. Uh, so what we'll see first is Robert A. Smith who is on the left side was a Democratic candidate for mayor and Chester R. Smith who's on the right side uh, was the Republican c- uh, candidate for mayor. Uh, Chester R. Smith owned a real estate firm and during the mayoral race rumors are spread that Chester R. Smith did not sell or rent properties to individual of color the Black community was urged to vote for Robert A. Smith. And the newspaper articles do not clearly say who was spreading these rumors, but presumably it was supporters of Robert A. Smith. Um, There was even a poem written written about Chester Smith's action against Black homeownership. And in response to these accusations, uh, Black tenants that have rented or purchased from Chester R. Smith spoke up arguing that it was simply not true that Chester R. Smith. Discriminated against Black renters or home, home buyers. In an effort to refute the rumors against Chester R. Smith, um, the appeal offered a story about uh, Robert A. Smith and his position in relation to Black homeownership. In 1890, Robert A. Smith bought a lot next to Mr. Thomas H. Lyles, um, a wealthy Black homeowner who did not support Robert Smith in an earlier campaign uh, for mayor. And so in response, Robert Smith uh, bought a livery barn, which is um, kind of like a stable where horses and other farm animals live on his lot very close to Lyle's property. The barn decreased uh, the economic value of Mr. Lyle's land. And when Mr. Lyle's asked Robert Smith to buy or trade the land, uh, Robert Smith denied his request. And shortly, Mr. Lyle moved out of his home. And so the story demonstrates a lot that Um, As early as the 1900s, debates about who could live where and uh, were already important to the community um, in St. Paul. And 10 years before the first racial covenant in Ramsey County, white people were already developing ways to create uh, spaces as white spaces. And now I'm gonna head it over back to Rachel.
2: Thanks, Anastasia. So this has been such a fascinating story. it would be so interesting to hear in the Q&A if this is a story that some of you all are familiar with in this mayor's race. Um, COVID has of course presented challenges for our research. We um, initially, what I envisioned we would do is literally go through newspapers day by day, um, starting in 1900, to see what stories we could find, to see, you know, who seemed to be talking about housing, or what were the events related to housing. So this is one of those stories that we found, just a small snippet of, um, while we were looking at newspapers that had been digitized while the archives were closed, and now as archives have reopened, we've managed to find some other pieces um, to go with the story as well. I'm going to move us ahead about a decade in time. So, I sort of arbitrarily decided we would start our research in 1900 because we needed a place to start. So, I, I went with 1900. Um, the sort of looking back to the story of Thomas Lyles in 1890 makes me think that maybe we need to move our timeline back. But 1900 does, the mayor's race does seem to sort of offer something of a starting place. I think the next story or moment that's interesting to think about is a story that happens in the Crocus Hill neighborhood in 1909. So in the year 1909, um, a black dentist in St. Paul by the name of Dr. Bell owned a piece of property in the Crocus Hill neighborhood um, on Lincoln Avenue. And the house that he owned, the property that he owned actually still stands there today. He rented out that property to two African-American families. One family lived upstairs. The second family lived downstairs. And they were, as far as I can tell, the first, um, these two families were the first African-American families to move into the Crocus Hill neighborhood in 1909. And their white neighbors in Crocus Hill were not happy. So the title that comes on this slide, Near Race Riot in St. Lee City, Um, comes from a newspaper actually in La Crosse, Wisconsin. This particular story I found was talked about not only in newspapers here in the Twin Cities, but newspapers around Minnesota, the Midwest. And actually it was a story that was covered in um, national newspapers and newspapers all around the United States. But the title here I think is striking, right? Near Race Riot in St. Lee City. Clearly at the time, this was a somewhat significant event. So when the two families moved in um, to Crocus Hill, um, their white neighbors were not happy. And they tried to figure out, the white neighbors tried to figure out what to do. 1909 was a year before the first racial covenant appears in Ramsey County. We see the first racial covenant in 1910. So right, there was certainly nothing that would have prevented um, the African-American families from moving into the neighborhood, um, except for, the really horrific actions of their white neighbors. So the first thing the white neighbors did was they hosted a series of meetings. They referred to them as indignation meetings, um, where it would seem all the neighbors got together to talk about how angry they were um, that Dr. Bell um, had moved these particular tenants into this property and to try to figure out what to do. And so initially what they decided to do is that they would try through acts of intimidation and violence to push the Black families out of the apartment. So they do things like um, break windows um, in the property. They ring the doorbell at all hours of the night. Um, It was actually the second story here um, that starts smash windows in the title talks about what happens when the windows are broken. And they. And the article actually goes on to say that on the evening that the windows were broken, that before the windows were broken, whoever broke the windows went down the street and broke all the lights on the street so that no one could see what they were doing. Um, so the hope of the white neighbors anyway, was that through these acts of intimidation and violence, they would force these two families to move and Dr. Bell to sell the property. The family that lived downstairs moved fairly quickly. Um, Upstairs was an older woman and her husband, I think it's a little unclear from the newspaper stories um, if her husband lives there with her or if she might be widowed. Her name was Mrs. Jackson and she does not move immediately. And in the newspaper story, she's quoted as saying, I have nowhere to go, right? There is no place for me to move Um, because she and the neighbors who left more quickly both noted that Dr. Bell offered them housing that they could afford. Um, And even in 1909, this sort of debate and question about where was affordable housing available, was still an important issue. So Mrs. Jackson does not immediately leave. Um, There are continued actions of harassment and violence. The neighbors try to negotiate with Dr. Bell to see if he will sell them the property. He says that he will sell the property, but only for a fair price. The neighbors complain that this is in fact a real estate scheme, that he has purchased this property and deliberately moved these black families in to force the white neighbors to pay higher than market value for the house to buy him out. They accuse him of trying to colonize the neighborhood. The newspaper articles report, and this is a a direct quote again from the newspaper articles. So the newspaper articles run from mid-May 1909 to early June 1909. They accuse Dr. Bell of trying to establish um, what the newspapers refer to as a Negro colony in Crocus Hill. Eventually Mrs. Jackson will move and eventually Dr. Bell sells the property. When he sells the property, um, the appeal reports that the money he makes from the sale of the sale of the property, he takes to Montana and he buys property in Montana. Though I don't think he himself ever actually moves to Montana. I believe he stays um, in St. Paul um, for the duration of his life. He dies, I believe, in the early 1940s. Um, so, this story of Crocus Hill, you know, the other piece of it that I think is so startling is that in these initial indignation meetings where these white neighbors are talking about what they should do to solve this problem that they have. And again, the problem that they have is that two Black families have moved into the neighborhood. Their solution, or one of the solutions that they talk about anyway, is that perhaps they should have a lynching. And the newspaper articles report on this. It was apparently not a sort of secret um, that this was what they talked about. But it is, I think, startling to imagine, you know, I mean, 1909, it is a long time ago, but it's not that long ago in the schema of history, that, you know, these white folks got together and thought the solution to their problem was to have a lynching. Now, thankfully, they they don't, Um, that's not where this story ends, though this story does end with two families who needed affordable housing, having to find other housing. And this is a story, I've told this story now probably in 30 different um, rooms over the last semester, you know, Zoom rooms, to all different kinds of people and all different kinds of groups. And this is one of the stories we've discovered that I've most often had people say to me, I never knew that happened in the place where we live. Um, And yet it did. And it was clearly a pretty significant event, right? Here you can see the title race war to be kept up. So now I'm going to turn it over to Ava. Um, And Ava, if you could also introduce yourself. And she's going to share a story um, that I think might be more familiar um, to folks in the room. But again, it'll be interesting to hear what everybody thinks afterwards.
5: Yes, thank you, Rachel. Hi, I'm Ava Griswold. I'm going to be graduating in December from St. Kate's um, with a double major in history and French and a minor in women's studies. And I just started working on this project this summer. Um, and so I'm going to dive right in and start talking about a little bit of context before I go into this um, specific article. But after World War I, um, black residents began to leave downtown St. Paul. However, um that left that was difficult to do because there wasn't a lot of places that black residents could move in the twin cities um due to racial housing covenants as well as the poor housing conditions in the black communities um the housing conditions for black residents were incredibly poor and the neighborhoods lacked um many necessary community services um and surveys of these housing conditions were conducted by both the double n uh, NAACP and uh a special uh, governor's organization. Um, And they did several of these studies uh, post-World War II. Um, After both world wars, there was a so-called housing crisis in the United States that many of you may be familiar with. Um, And this obviously had a great impact, especially in the Twin Cities um, among the Black residents. Um, As we talked about before, racial housing covenants um, were very prominent in Minneapolis and as well in St. Paul and the rest of Ramsey County. Um, So that severely limited where um, Black people could own and rent homes. Um, So as a result of these surveys um, and just general, change of the time um, federal and state governments began rolling out public housing programs um, that were aimed uh, that were low rent or aimed for um uh restricted income individuals and families Um, and a lot of this was aimed at the black community specifically in minnesota the minnesota housing programs um were aimed at the black community here and in 1951 uh on the east side of st paul Uh, there was a proposed low rent housing um, development to be built, however, um, the white residents of the East Side at the time were not happy about this, and you can see this theme developing um, how Rachel talked about in Crocus Hill, the white residents um, were not happy about Um, this low rent development coming in and having um, black neighbors. And you can see that it says over 600 residents gathered in protest. That is an incredibly impressive amount of people to come out in hatred for this. Um, And on the right here, there's some horrible uh, racist language that people would use and spread these um, horrible comments to get people to not support this uh, housing development and eventually this was the third time it had been voted on by the city council and this is the third time it had been defeated. Uh, After this, there is no other mention of this specific housing development because it essentially died um, with the people Uh, Rachel you can go to the next slide here and uh this is an article so the first article i showed you was published in may this article was published in june um this is a snippet from a guest editorial written by a man named oc hall and he was talking about this housing controversy um, that i was just mentioning on the east side um and he said there were two arguments for this one of them being economic financial that the value of the property surrounding the low rent development would um, go down severely, but there it wasn't really a founded uh, point there. Um, essentially, he was saying that people were using this economic argument to veil their racism. Um, and the last quote that he says here is, truthfully, people in this section would not want people of different nationality, religion, and certain economic status to live near them. Um, and this is a very telling historical precedent. As you can see, there are um right now there's a whole rent battle happening um in the twin cities and you can see this happening again and again and again this obviously wasn't the first story and it definitely um won't be the last so it's important to understand and analyze these historical precedents um and also be able to compare them to what's happening in our future and i'm going to hand it back over to rachel here
2: thanks ava So we've given you these three different vignettes, right? One from 1900, one from 1909, and then this last from 1951. It's a big jump in time, I know, between 1909 and 1951. Um, But there are other stories, of course, that we could tell in that time in between. And what happens in that time in between is that racial covenants start to divide the community, redlining further limits neighborhoods. And then I would say after the Second World War, right? it's conversations about zoning that become ways to mask conversations about race. And so if I think about these three um, vignettes that we've shared and the other stories that we've discovered, it for me really raises three questions. What stories do we tell about the communities where we live? Because again, my sense is that maybe the Crocus Hill story isn't the story that we tell. You know, again, I said at the beginning, I think particularly for a lot of white people who live in Ramsey County, I think the story of what happens in the Rondo neighborhood is known. But if that's the only story that gets told, it's easy to draw a box around that and say, racism was there, but it wasn't any place else. The work that we've been doing um, suggests that in fact, right, this sort of racist story is much more pervasive. And I wonder, you know, what would it matter to tell the story of Crocus Hill, to tell the story of the 1900 mayor's race? It also, I think, raises the question, whose stories do we tell? I think often too, the story we tell is the story that's here on the right right, that Minneapolis and St. Paul rank highly as one of the best places to live. Um, So this is from 2020, um, which actually, you know, rated at number 22 was actually a drop because in 2019, the Twin Cities ranked much higher in U.S. News and World Report's best places to live. But I mean, all over on social media, you can see these kinds of rankings. But if this is the story that we tell, that this is the best place to live by a variety of different metrics. You know, when you really dig into that, and Christine is going to talk more about this, um, what turns out to be the case is that this is the best place to live for white people. It is in fact, one of the worst places to live for people of color. So even if I just look at metrics around housing, roughly in the Twin Cities, 75% of white families own their own home, approximately 25% of black families own their own home. And that 50% um, gap between the two makes for the largest housing disparity in the United States. But that's not often I don't think the story we tell we're far more likely to tell this story um, about how it's the best place to live. So whose stories do we tell? And for me, it lands me, you know, in the present, um, you know, what would happen if we told different stories? How would debates around housing in our community today look different if we told different stories about the past? and what the history of housing and housing inequality in our community look like. I have just this one last slide before I turn things over to Christine and her team. So this is a sneak peek of the Ramsey County map. So I just wanna emphasize that it's not done yet. And you can see that, I mean, Hennepin County is included here, that side of the map is complete. All of the red on the map represents racial covenants. So this is the map that um, Mapping Prejudice is creating. This represents data for Ramsey County that had been added to the map um, by the end of October of 2020. So there is more red in Ramsey County, um, or there will be when the map is done than what's shown here. But this is the start of what it looks like. And we do see very similar trends developing between Hennepin County and Ramsey County. So you'll notice if you look at the cities themselves, right, like the sort of traditional downtown areas of Minneapolis and St. Paul, that there's not a lot of red there. And that's because, right, of course, those cities were fairly well established well before 1910. And we don't typically see racial covenants being added to areas that already existed. Racial covenants were most often added to new new developments and new homes that were being built. So that's why you see them sort of in a ring around the older and more traditional downtown areas and sort of moving out into these new suburbs that are being built and developed um, in the early to mid 20th century. And so we anticipate that that trend will continue to Um, hold true as the map is built. And often when we give these presentations, um, folks from Mapping Prejudice come with with us. They weren't able to come this evening. So I do wanna just emphasize, it really is this work that they're doing to create this map really is remarkable work. Um, This method that they've developed is absolutely groundbreaking because there just wasn't a way to see this in the way that it's presented here prior to their work. Um, and so I think it's exciting to think about you know, what kinds of conversations this could raise, not just here as we sort of think about the, what the map looks like for our own community, but as they bring this map to other communities around the United States, or they bring this method to other communities around the United States. So that's it for my part. I'm gonna turn things over to Christine. Um, And I'll look forward to questions and talking more with you all at the end.
3: You're gonna continue to advance slides. Wonderful. Good. So thanks, Rachel. I am uh, even newer to this project um, than Rachel. I've sort of joined lately and I'm just really thrilled to get to be part of this conversation because it's such an important conversation. Um, And I love what this project has done. Like Rachel was just talking about the groundbreaking nature of going from you know, she talked about how historically you could go get a single deed from the archive and you knew that there were racial covenants in this single deed but being able to see it visualize in the aggregate on the map of how transformative that had been it really reminds me of why i like working with data um, and so there's this uh, interdisciplinary nature of this project that we're doing here um, and i've kind of got this data portion of it this quantitative piece that's kind of fun um, and so Rachel was the storyteller. She tells great stories. And then I've got some data to tell you that's going to paint, I think, much of the same story, but with a a sort of different canvas. Uh, We've been looking a lot at census data. Uh, We've been looking at data from then, from this sort of historical period. We've got some data from 1910, 1920, 1930, 40, that same time period where Rachel and her students were telling some stories, but then also trying to fast forward and make those connections between past and present. You know, Ava mentioned when she was talking about the the connections between the stories that she was telling and present day policy issues. When I've been listening to um, the folks from Mapping Prejudice and Rachel and others from the Welcome and the Dear Neighbor project tell these stories occasionally and more often than you might hope um, to hear people sometimes encounter these stories and they think, yeah, that's all very interesting. That's all very you know, impactful. Those are very um, stories that really hit. But sometimes people say those are stories that are our past and is that really our present? Um, and I think it's important for social scientists like myself and my colleagues and my students to help draw these connections and help use data to connect past and present, to help think about how to understand our current wealth of housing disparities and understand them in this historical context and to draw that connection very carefully and not just wave our hands and say, well, yes, of course, it's all connected, right? Um, But to really make the time to make those connections clear and make those connections clear specifically for Ramsey county right for our particular context okay. I mean I think this is critical because there are really contentious policy conversations that are ongoing right everything from rent control to reparations that are going to need this kind of context and this kind of data. Um, The data that we've been playing around with this summer is really just census data. So three cheers and hooray to our colleagues over at the Minnesota Population Center, over at the U of M, who do just phenomenal work to make census data really easily accessible through their work on the IPAMS project. Um, I've got students who are going to talk to us about three different pieces of data today. We're going to look at data from then, that 1910 and 1940 piece Um, or look at patterns of racial segregation, which is kind of that quantitative version of the stories you just heard. We'll fast forward a little bit to try and make some of the connections to today, but we're just getting going on that work. Some of it, we're just going to talk about work that others have done that I think is really fascinating. And then we'll talk about how we're hoping to think about this in terms of upward mobility and the role of neighborhood and where you grow up in terms of. how that informs your your outcomes as an adult. And we're gonna borrow some work from some economists out at Harvard to talk about that. So off we go, Rachel, next slide. And I think Victoria, you wanna go ahead and unmute and give us your video for this slide.
6: Yes, hello, my name is Victoria. I will be an incoming um, third year majoring in economics and international studies. Um, So just to start us off, Um, The number of enumeration districts that are entirely white increases by 10 to 15 percent each decade from 1910 through 1940. Um, Basically, enumeration districts have been used by the Bureau of the Census um, as an area that could be covered or kept track of by a census taker in one census period. So we can think of enumeration districts as like a neighborhood Um, going back to the visual. We have been able to get a glance of what was previously mentioned as the quantitative version of stories we heard from Dr. Nywer, Anastasia, and Ava. Um, We can see that in 1910, one third of neighborhoods had no black residents. And as we go through the next decades, um, 1920, 30, in 1940, that had doubled. So we can see that fully two thirds of neighborhoods had no black um, residents. So this indicates that segregation indeed was worsening and um, this was due to more spaces being claimed as white spaces.
3: Thanks, Victoria. They just calculated these statistics the other day. They're fresh off the presses and I find them startling, right? Like I think that I, at least in my education was brought up with this idea that of course, segregation is always getting better. Like we are moving towards a more equal world. and. And yet we're seeing these patterns and they saw the mapping prejudice team did some of this work on Hennepin County side and saw the same thing where in fact, segregation was worsening through this period. And in many ways, the housing deeds were part of that, right? They were pushing black residents into fewer and fewer spaces within the twin cities. And so the data are really supporting the storytelling um, that Rachel and her team are working on and that the maps are showing as well. Right, Rachel, next slide. Thank you. Um, So ultimately, the goal is to like we said connect the dots between past and present. Uh, We haven't done that yet in Ramsey County. So let me tell you about some excellent work that colleagues um, and the mapping prejudice and the University of Minnesota team have done in Hennepin County to connect the data there where the map is complete. Um, They've shown with some really great econometric work um, that in fact houses that were covenanted, houses that had these covenants um, today are worth more than houses that didn't have covenants. So the covenants worked. They protected the value of the houses for the owners of those houses. And they worked in the sense that they also protected white spaces. So areas, blocks, census blocks that had more housing covenants today in 2010, I think is when their data is from in 2010 have fewer black residents and fewer black homeowners than census tracts that had fewer housing covenants. So it is not okay to say that, oh, this was just the past and they're no longer enforceable and it's a relic of history. It is very much the case that we can show convincingly that this history is still with us today and still influencing the value of the houses and the the composition of the neighborhoods where people live today. At least we know that to be true in Hennepin County and we expect to see the same in Ramsey County and this uh, wonderful team of students that I have will hopefully get that data in the next uh, year or so. Great, next slide. Okay, and then our last idea of where we hope to go with this, Ava is going to take it from here. Thank you, Ava, and introduce yourself as you go.
7: Hi, I'm Ava. Um, I am an econ major, an econ policy major, okay. Uh, Another way we're thinking about the impact of historic discrimination is to using some novel data from Raj Chetty, an economist at Harvard. He and his team have created the Opportunity Atlas, which looks at how neighborhoods affect children's later life outcomes. Since no two neighborhoods have the same conditions, children's outcomes in a neighborhood can be significantly different than in a nearby neighborhood. Chetty and others generally find that neighborhoods in the Midwest have pretty good upper mobility, but we're finding that the story is not true for all households in Ramsey County. It differs significantly by race, which of course likely tracks back to the work that we're exploring as part of this project. In the upper right is a table that shows income at age 35 for children born from 1978 to 1983 in Ramsey County. It's organized by race and income level. We can see that children born into the 25th percentile or low income households make about 20,000 less than children born into the 75th percentile which are considered high income households. And even while even when uh, families are in the same percentile, children can have very different outcomes. Children from white and Asian families make about 10,000 more than children from black and Hispanic families um, in both percentiles.
3: Perfect, thank you, Ava. And so our hope is that we're thinking about like not just the role of the deeds in shaping neighborhoods, but then the role of neighborhoods in shaping children's outcomes, right? And thinking about the role of these deeds and building families wealth and building opportunity for families, right? Because that's why you buy a house, you buy a house so that you can raise your family there and you buy a house so that you can raise your children, right? And so we're gonna try and build the stories to build into the policy conversations that we know our communities wanna have. Rachel, next slide. Perfect. So we had an hour with you all here today. I see some great questions coming up in the chat. Um, we bounced around a bit. You know, Rachel said we introduced you to this idea of racial covenants um, and our partnership with the Mapping Prejudice Project. You got three stories, everything from the mayoral candidates um, through the Crocus Hill near race riots to the East Side housing stories of the 1950s a little snapshot of how we're looking at some of this census data and trying to really understand the Ramsey County story statistically um, and our sort of hope to think about what this might portray if we look at the data from Raj Chetty and others about upward mobility and what this means for the children who grow up in these neighborhoods. We could talk for hours on end, but we'd really rather it be a conversation than us talking at you. Um, And so I think our timing is just about right um, for us to kind of pause and open it up for a little bit of Q&A on any and all of these topics or anything else that maybe um, people want to bring into the conversation.
8: Thank you all for your information. And if people would like to put your questions in the chat, Uh, Peter and I will read those out so they can be answered and they'll, uh, people who watch the video later will know the questions. So Janet had a question um, that Kaylin answered about giving an example of the language used in the covenants. And those examples are on the Mapping Prejudice website for anybody to see. But she goes on to ask, um, how can we see how potential buyers were excluded? Does the typical covenant specifically target black buyers? And have you looked at the exclusion of other kinds of people of color?
2: So there's actually a fair amount of um, variety in the racial covenants. So, and the, the length, there's two broad ways though the racial covenants work. Some racial covenants just say only people of the Caucasian race can live in this home. Um, so in that way, right, they're excluding all people of color. Um, there are other racial covenants that more specifically name um, different groups. And let's see, um, Let me see if I can find just quickly here, the very first racial covenant um, that we see in Hennepin County. Um, I'm gonna read, I'm quoting here from the racial covenant, but the, you know, this is historical language that we would not use today. But this is the first racial covenant we see in Hennepin County, and this is the most common language that we see in racial covenants in Hennepin County. It says the party of the second part hereby agrees that the premises hereby conveyed shall not at any time be conveyed, mortgaged, or leased to any person or persons of Chinese, Japanese, Moorish, Turkish, Negro, Mongolian, or African blood or descent. Said restrictions and covenants shall run with the land. So there it names a variety of different um, groups of people. Um, And then that second piece that said restrictions shall run with the land is actually a really important piece of the covenant because historically racial covenants were really strong legal mechanisms to claim property for white people because the covenant runs with the land not with the person who owns the property, right? So if the next person who buys that piece of property that has that racial covenant thinks, I disagree with that, I'm not doing that racial covenant, that's not actually a choice that they have. Um, Because if they violate the racial covenant, the property reverts back to the original owners. Racial covenants were technically ruled by the Supreme Court to be unenforceable in the late 1940s, but we see them being added to deeds in Ramsey County as late as 1960. And the Fair Housing Act in 1968 will finally name racial covenants as being illegal.
8: So I think, thank you, Rachel, I think that answers Rich's question who asked about were there any examples of covenants being enforced or ignored.
2: So, Ava Griswold, my student who has left us I think because she had somewhere else to be this evening, has just found some evidence of a of a court case related to racial covenants in Ramsey County. My understanding in Hennepin County is that we don't see a lot of um, legal challenges to racial covenants. The one example they found is um, there's that big cemetery by the quarry, by that shopping center in Minneapolis. And that cemetery actually had racial covenants on the, the burial plots. And there was a legal case there um, brought by, I think a woman who was indigenous and she was married to a white man and he was buried there. And the intention was that she would be buried by her husband, but the cemetery said no, because the plots, had racial covenants on them. So if you look at the racial covenant map for Hennepin County, you can see the marks in that cemetery for the plots that had racial covenants.
8: Well, that's really interesting to think about cemeteries too. It's not something that I think most of us would even consider. So I'll come back to Jeannie's question. But Melissa had a question which kind of leads into it. Um, In the early 20th century, did you learn anything about how lots, before the houses were built, were marketed and sold If, if certain groups were targeted and who owned the lots, if it was real estate companies or individuals, or kind of, you know, when did that marketing and the covenants kind of kick in on lots that didn't have houses, especially I was thinking about some of the outer suburbs that were originally farms.
2: So I would say that some of that um, happens, so when we first see, well, let me back up a step. So generally speaking, I, I think roughly the narrative that develops is that in that first decade of the 20th century, there's a fair amount of people moving around Um, particularly people of color. I mean, the population, for example, um, both in Minneapolis and St. Paul in about the year 1900, um, the black community represents about 1%, a little bit more, um, but less than 2% of the population of each of those cities at the time. But it does seem apparent that um, within the black community in St. Paul and Minneapolis in that first decade of the 20th century, people were moving about. And it's as though the white people, um, the white neighbors in that early decade sort of threw their hands in the air and said, oh my goodness, what are we gonna do? And write these, you know, what happened at Crocus Hill, um, it's as though they decide that's not a very good long-term solution. So racial covenants become the longer term solution because then you put it in the property deed and then it's it's there. So. We see them in the racial covenants are added to property deeds, mostly by developers, so they're large scale over huge developments are added to places and the racial covenants were actually selling features. So um, sometimes I show I didn't show tonight um, the Frankston's Como Park edition. Um, when they were running advertisements in St. Paul newspapers for people to come and buy their lots and build houses on their lots, they actually advertised it as a selling feature and wrote it in the newspaper. You should come buy our houses because we're going to have racial covenants and only white people will live in these houses. So it is an important thing I think to remember about racial covenants. They're not a secret, they were in fact a selling point. Um, They were a selling point. They were why builders argued their properties held value and were good investments.
8: So I think that goes, and I'm not ignoring you, Jeannie, we'll come back to your question. Um, Janet mentioned, if you have, and it sounds like you might have looked at the ways that developers restricted sales to particular groups. So she relates that in 1954, her parents were told by more than one developer in Roseville that they could not live in the properties in the new development, but they did find one developer who would work with them if the existing residents approved.
2: I mean, I, I'm i sorry to hear that that happened to your parents also in 1954, it seems Horrifically unsurprising, you know, racial covenants, it's, I think it's two groups that particularly help to spread them. So it's developers who are adding them to their properties um, as a way to ensure that their properties hold value. But it's also realtors, you know, the real estate profession professionalizes right at the beginning, sort of at the beginning of the 20th century. And in the first or one of the first code of ethics that the real estate profession wrote, part of that code of ethics was that realtors were not to integrate neighborhoods. That in fact, white neighborhoods should be white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods should be black neighborhoods. And you were not, acting ethically as a realtor if you sold property to a black family in a white neighborhood. Now in the early, I believe it's in the early 1940s that um, part of the code of ethics for the professional body of realtors changes, um, but it does take time for practice to change, right? I mean, you can see that with the racial covenants just because the Supreme Court says in the late 1940s, they're unenforceable it takes time for that to actually live out in action.
8: Um, oh, Jeannie's question. So she was wondering if there's an estimate on when the Ramsey County mapping will be completed. We think by the end of the year, um,
2: but it's it is just challenging because um, Kevin, who so who tragically passed away. Um, really was the leader in actually making the map. So there's just a moment here of figuring it out. And the research that Christine quoted about the value of properties, that's research that in part, um, it was Kevin who helped to do that work. Um, So I think it's gonna be the end of the year before the Ramsey County map is done.
8: Does anyone else have any other questions? Well, I wanna thank our speakers tonight and the students um, for all the great work you are doing and for sharing it with all of us. Um, So what we're going to do, Clarence, if you wanna turn off the recording and the live stream, we'll let everybody unmute and turn on your microphones. And again, thank you all so much for being here tonight and it will be on uh, YouTube soon.